The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by extractor of cider, uh, caretaker of chickens, and bona fide public finance expert, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks. Always glad to be here. And speaking of chickens, I have a new chicken coop arriving. So, um, you know, we're, we're upgrading from the from the cheap little coop to a, a like winter-ready chicken coop <laughs> for these girls. <laughs> well, sounds 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 like it's getting real very quickly uh, on the, on the, in the Shire. Very exciting. Yeah, you should. The stuff I was doing to the old coop was embarrassing to keep it warm during the winter. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear. Good to hear. So uh, today we want to talk about uh, kind of two interrelated themes. So uh, one is as we're learning more about the pandemic and which parts of the pandemic are here to stay, particularly as it relates to things like work from home and the impact that work from home will have on city revenues, uh, on public finance writ large at the state and local level. We want to talk about that. And, and Liz has some interesting findings to share with us on that. And then we want, we want to take that trend and we want to uh, look at that trend alongside some of the leadership challenges that we know that those trends present. And we're here uh, today, can hear from uh, Catherine Tuck Parrish, who is uh, uh, one of the leading recruiters in state and local governments, somebody who goes out there and finds uh, four communities, city managers, chief finance officers, police chiefs, and others. And she's going to tell us about how a lot of these trends that we've been talking about are playing out in searches for leaders in communities who can take on these kinds of financial and economic development and community development challenges. So uh, to set the stage on that, Liz, you know, you've got a, a great new report that you have uh, recently released that's looking at what we know about work from home, which parts of it are uh, now here to stay, or at least appear a lot, a lot more here to stay than they were uh, at the start of the pandemic. So walk us through those findings and uh, tell us a little bit about how that plays into some of the broader trends that we've been talking about here on the pod. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was really excited when this report came out. It's been kind of a labor of love. It's uh, with the Rockefeller Institute of Government and some of the data folks there. Uh, we've been working on this for months now. <laughs> um, and so this report came out a little while ago. And we look at what the status is of remote work throughout the course of the pandemic and um, draw some conclusions about like where we're at now um, and, and particularly where we're going, which is important for local policymakers, especially if you're in a major city. 
so some of the you know like top level findings are remote work has decreased since the early days of the pandemic obviously i mean if you have your eyes open you can probably see that right traffic has returned but i think the key takeaway there is that yes it's decreased but it's still averaging around 30% in large urban areas 30% of people have reported working remotely at some point in the last 2 weeks and so and that's compared to um for that same question uh, about 5% prior to the pandemic so still a really really big you know if you can do math that's six times the the, the amount right, right. six times right. the percentage even if it has declined and and that that percentage has kind of leveled off too i'd say in the last last year you know it was really up and down as as new developments happened work from home particularly uh changed if you know like during the delta variant when that got really big it, it, it declined um when vaccines started coming out so you did see some responsiveness there um which indicates that you know now that we've established the ability to work remotely that that same thing can happen so another takeaway too is that remote work access to remote work is very much an equity issue mm-hmm. access to remote work is kind of a proxy for um for income level folks sorry households that earned more than 100,000 annually were basically twice as likely to work remotely as any other income level um and and much more than much more than lower income levels it makes sense um when you consider that office based knowledge workers tend to earn more but i mean it it was to me a quite a staggering difference because it was like if you look at the chart between income levels it's like looking at a a, a cross section of a soil of a mm-hmm. you know soil analysis like you have the the layers that are separated and there's a huge gap between uh the 100,000 plus households and the 50,000 to 99,000 households and and down and so when we're talking about remote workers we're really talking about to a large degree higher earners and then when you break it down by race we're talking about um non-hispanic whites and people of asian descent i mean those are by far the two and the two groups that report working remotely the most <laughs> and the two groups that are are lower are are hispanic and um and blacks like i said it's an equity issue i mean all of that lines up with socioeconomic statistics in this in this country so that's just something for policymakers to consider as they kind of figure out especially if you're in a major urban city you know what your daytime population is going to to be you know in the coming years obviously places are still working that out but i will say there are a couple of cities that really really stood out to me as you know this this is what it's going to be mm-hmm. and one of them is washington dc again large federal government workforce large government workforce period uh, a lot of nonprofits those two sectors were the sectors uh, during the first year or so of the pandemic that really had a high rate of remote work a lot of contract employees so washington dc at at one point in the pandemic 60% of people reported of households reported working remotely it was higher than anybody else it is still higher than anybody else it has never gone below 50% you know and i live in that area too so i'm like yep makes sense um so another another stand out to me is is san francisco and and much like washington dc it has a footprint a city size that is very small and restricted um lot of popular working population that have access to remote work you know and in san francisco it would be technology 
Um, and so very similar figures. Uh, San Francisco population also used to rely pretty, I wouldn't say as heavily as like New York or JC, but a good amount of people did commute. You know, all of those things kind of tend to come together as predictors of whether or not remote work is gonna, gonna be a, at a high rate. High pu public transit usage, although that as, a, as an indicator kind of softened a bit as the pandemic went on. But certainly, um, you know, propensity to have high remote work numbers and then high income levels and then a high uh, percentage of the sector that has access to remote work. Last place I'll point out <laughs> before I let you ask a question is Dallas, Dallas, Texas. I've mentioned this on one of our previous episodes. That to me was a big surprise because generally remote work has been higher in the Northeast and the West not so much in the South and Southeast. And, but Dallas is like the lone standout as of August, 2022, still about 40% of households were reporting remote work, which is very much on the higher end when you say 30% is the average. You know, a low percentage of, of the population relied on public transit before the pandemic, but it did have a relatively high population reporting remote work before the pandemic. Um, you know, higher income level, all of that stuff. But that to me is sort of, Interesting, and 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 I wonder, you know, what what that means going forward for for Dallas. Is this a sign of growth? Is this, you know, who knows? Definitely, yeah, and it sort of suggests that there are different kinds of downtowns, right? I mean, there are downtowns that are there. Prime, certainly, when I think of Dallas, and and there might be some who disagree, listeners, if you if you are hearing this and have a different take, share it with us. But as as that may be a downtown that's there primarily to serve that downtown business community, a lot of professional services, a lot of banking, a lot of jobs that can now be done remotely. And so it may be that without a lot of folks downtown to be, uh, to be commuting to, if you're in the services side, if you're in the food service, if you're providing services to that downtown business community, and that downtown business community isn't there, then maybe there's this kind of multiplier effect where you see high levels of work from home because there's just not the reason to have people commuting in and doing those jobs in the first place, given that everybody's working from yeah. home. And then that, and that really speaks to, I think, and, and, and you talk about this a little bit in the report that really speaks to the fiscal implications of this, which are massive. When you think about it, how much of the sales tax collections that happen in our core urban areas are serving downtown commuters and serving people who are coming into work and then going back out how much of the property values, you, you talk about some of the estimates of particularly commercial property values in, in core downtown areas, how this is going to impact those values and then ultimately what that means for property taxes. You think about, uh, we we've, have talked about uh, fare box revenues for transit systems. I mean, these are massive shifts in how we think about where we generate revenues for, for core cities. And then of course, the flip side of that is if you are, take San Francisco, right? If you are in uh, Walnut Creek, if you are in Daly City, you know, if you're in one of these jurisdictions outside the core of San Francisco that are still reachable for a commute that somebody's now doing once every other week or maybe once or twice a month, you're seeing a very different kind of person coming to your community because you suddenly have a lot more to offer uh, the kind of person who might have otherwise lived closer and commuted in day in and day out. So these are you know, these are massive changes with huge public money implications. Particularly, as you point out, with the sales tax, because local sales taxes, 
can change, obviously, depending on, on who's doing the buying and where. And if and, and we've seen like anecdotal evidence of this, stories about this. Um, I've written about this weird uh, sales tax issue in Texas that's going on right now with, with the remote sales. Bottom line, you know, if sales taxes are down in, in major urban areas because of precisely that, because they don't have the daytime population they used to, all those people are now spread out spending their, you know, their money in different places than they used to, or, or maybe even not at all if they're not going out to lunch. And so there is that shift of, of fiscal impact to the suburbs, which isn't a bad thing for them. <laughs> but th then you know, they have the daytime population now. So there is so much shuffling around going on with where people are moving day to day, where they're spending their money, what that means for revenue collection, what that means for roads, for transit. And it's like every six months, it, it seem, things seem to shift. The pandemic is ebbing, but you know the, things are so different now than they were a couple of years ago. That I I know that you know every any time I talk to some people in local government, it's it's like one day at a time. A lot of times with trying to trying to manage um, what their revenue picture looks like. So a lot of you know, kind of wait and see, which is super frustrating if you're trying to do like a five-year forecast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Or if you're looking to hire uh, people to come in and and provide those services, right? And and run your jurisdiction, mm -hmm. which is a nice segue into the other piece of what we're getting into today, which is, you know, given all those changes, given the shifts in where revenues are coming from, given the shifts in who's living where, given the shifts in what those who are moving around are expecting from their local governments, suddenly you have uh, a, a huge community engagement challenge on your hands. Suddenly you have a huge challenge in defining priorities. You have a huge challenge in thinking about how we interact with the community. And these all become leadership challenges for city managers, chief finance officers, police chiefs, uh, and others. And so they're the ones who we're tasking with, not just the wait and see, not just the take it one day at a time, but help us to think through what that means for a three-year plan or a five-year plan, even if right now we don't have a very good idea of exactly what that means. Help us through that process because that seems to be a big part of what leading, particularly around leading public money these days seems to mean. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the pod, Catherine Tuck Parrish, who is the vice president at Reftelis. Uh, she had a career of her own in city management, local government management, uh, working in uh, all over the East Coast, all over North Texas, and lots of other places. Uh, very accomplished in her own right as a local government executive. And now she's in the business of recruiting executives for local government, and in particular in the city manager and CFO side. We thought there'd be no better person to come in and tell us about how the current and post-COVID environment is affecting the way we think about talent in the C-suite. So Catherine Tuck-Parish, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. So this is, after all, the, the public money pod. And so we're, we're always curious about financial leadership, right? And the things that, that leaders of the finance function are doing and, and how that's changing, especially in, in this evolving world that we're in. When you um, are out there looking at potential candidates for, say, CFO roles, what is the 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 skill set that we've seen, and how has that skill set uh, developed a little bit in a in a post COVID world? Well, I think 
we're going to stipulate that whoever is leading the financial function has the technical ability to do that job. But I think what I am hearing from city and county managers, from elected officials, is they need um, really this educator role because many elected officials, they don't understand how local governments are financed. Even if they're very strong in the private sector finance, it's just very different. And so there is a, a role and a really important skill that is teaching, but not talking down to community members, elected officials, and honestly, staff members in the local government. There's a huge right. education role for, for a, a true, um, to have a true partnership with your CFO and the rest of your organization. You have to make sure that you've got that basic financial literacy um, taken care of both with within the organization and in the community and, and with your elected officials. So there's this, that teaching element. There's a really important role, I think, in building consensus that the CFO or the finance director really can play a role. And obviously the city and county manager have a big role in that, but there is such an opportunity um, with the strongest CFOs are really able to, they're able to help build consensus in difficult times. Um, people are really polarized um, in their viewpoints. And I think the CFO really plays a really critical role in maybe depoliticizing things and um, helping to build consensus around shared goals. The necessary skills to be able to lead your workforce are so important right now. The ability to take the numbers and explain them. It's not, it's not enough to know what they are. You must be able to explain what they mean. And so that data analytical skill and teaching your staff how to do that so that they're prepared um, for the next level. And then the other thing is this lens of impact on policies and budgeting practices. That's a, a new lens for many local governments. And I think the CFO and the finance director play a critical role in analyzing where money is going, what its impact is, where money isn't going, and what that impact is. It, it, what you're talking about reminds me of a story I wrote years ago at this point called The Politics of Being a CFO. And I think that was like back in 2017 or something like that. And it sounds like, especially with what's going on now, uh, this is more true than ever that you need a CFO with, with people skills, really. <laughs> um, but also getting back to what you were kind of describing for internally, leadership. But what I was hearing was compassion, leading with compassion. And, um, and can you talk a little bit more about you know, just that, that sort of approach, not just in finance departments, but across government, across all departments, um, what are, what are governments doing? What are leaders doing to create a more, a better environment, a better work environment? Absolutely. Um, I, I read, I think, um, might've been in the Harvard business review. I'm not sure, but I, that LinkedIn job posts, if you looked at them and compared them from 2019 to 2021, there was an 83% increase of the word flexibility being mentioned in a job post. So um, I think there's a lesson there for finance folks that that is um, really going to be important. Doing finances over COVID has taught everyone that it can be done remotely. And so I think figuring out what the best way is and what your workforce is interested in and how you can um, balance sort of a hybrid environment, I think is going to be important. But 
the number one thing that employees really want, I think, is to be asked. <laughs> they want to be asked and they want to have a, a say in their work. That internal engagement is really important. If you if you read the stats and you're and you know, I remember one coming out about um, a quarter of women were thinking about leaving their job. This was early in the pandemic. You know, so I think the message that I would give to anyone who leads staff is go ask your employees what they want. I mean, it's very simple. <laughs> I think that's that's really important. Help them, work with them to design how the work happens, how it gets allocated and in, engage them in that process. You mentioned also kind of the what I heard, the compassion, I, I also think of the word empathy. I think that's a really important part of the side of finance that we don't always, that's never really talked about. It's like, well, it's just the numbers. Let's just look at the data. But it's much more than that. You know, one of the things that has kept people from being successful in the CFO or management ranks in finance is that lack of people skills internally with their employees, across the organization for people whose brains work differently, working with elected officials and working with the community who has uh, who have issues that don't fit neatly in the financial framework of the budget. So I think um, that ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, that ability to engage with people that think differently than you is really um, important for the CFO um, to be working through who should be at the table? Who haven't we heard from? Why haven't we? You know, I'm sure we could talk a lot about what sorts of uh, employee engagement, what sorts of management strategies, you know, what sorts of management leadership traits uh, we're looking for. Clearly that's become very, very important. Focusing maybe just on the external for a little bit and specifically on you know, could argue that there's been a real emphasis on engagement, particularly in budgeting, right, and, and resource allocation post-COVID. Uh, and now that we have things like, you know, tools where people can go out and participate virtually in budget hearings and all sorts of things that we really didn't have before, I wonder if we could talk about that specific dimension of, of C-suite mm -hmm. level talent. When you think about engaging the community in the budget process in particular, is, does that mean a, a different kind of person, a different type of city manager or a different type of CFO, or maybe somebody with a slightly different um, emphasis in, in their professional development, or uh, maybe even a different kind of, of background altogether? You know, how has that emphasis on community engagement in, in budgeting and finance changed uh, who you're seeing come to this kind of work? Yeah, I think that's a great, a great question and a great um, conversation to have. I think one of the most important skill sets that um, are needed now, and I would submit have been needed for a while and are certainly going to be needed in the future, is more than just engagement, but how to share decision-making. I think there's been a lot of conversation for years about openness and transparency. And, you know, so the city's checkbook is up on the website and, you know, you can download certain data in lots of different um, states have laws about that and local governments are trying to kind of open up their books. But that's only showing your work. It's not actually engaging the community before you make a decision. And I think that's what residents and businesses and employees, people <laughs> have longed for. 
Um, and it's really difficult because we're trained in grad school to bring our professional best recommendations to the, to the local government. So both in a community setting and also to an elected body, and that's still needed, but we can't wait and engage at a meeting when the decision is going to be made. An open public meeting is not the best way to actually engage people in decision-making. That's not how it really works. And so I think there's been for both legal reasons and being able to check a box, we've had meetings and things, but if you really want to engage people, you have to first make sure that you both have identified what the problem is and you agree that this is actually the problem we're trying to solve. I think that is frequently what you find when you engage people later in the process. We're the city staff where we have heard about this problem and here's the solution. Maybe we have some options, you know, here are three options. But what you find sometimes in that later engagement is that's not the problem that the residents really wanted to be solved. So I think that skill to really engage at very different in very different ways with different groups and, and individuals and setting up and resetting processes to reflect that change in how your community wants to engage because there's still plenty of plenty of communities where they don't want to or or sections of communities that don't want to I just want my water to work when I go to the tap. And I just want my trash to be picked up every, every week. And, um, I want to make sure that the park is clean when I go to walk my dog or play with my, my children or significant others, et cetera. How do you have more than one size fits all to engage hmm. people who want to be engaged on the things they want to be engaged in? And how do you not, how do you still accomplish things when you do have that engagement? And I think that's where we kind of need to reset some of our processes. The budget process is a tremendous opportunity, both on the capital side and on the operating side, to talk about and assess what the needs are and how the local government is going to prioritize those. And so lots of local governments have used, you know, prioritization exercises for years with budgeting. And I think those are great. And um, I think those are those are pretty important. But we have to do that um in different ways in some communities and ensure that we're reaching more than just the usual suspects. Right. Right. To, to maybe to extend that just a little bit. So when you are looking at, you know, candidates, if you, a city council comes to you and says, we're looking for someone who can do what you just described. We, we want better engagement. We want to engage segments of the community that haven't been engaged. And I guess maybe as even a, as a piece of advice, perhaps for for people who are looking to position themselves to be competitive for those kinds of roles, what sorts of, of tangible things are you looking for? Can can somebody point to a budget process redesign that they've done? You know, what are the the sorts of things you can say? Here's the evidence that that is something that I, as an emerging executive, am accomplished at doing. Right. Absolutely. So I am uh, less interested in your philosophy on engagement and more interested in, in how you've demonstrated that. So um, whether it's, you know, describing that, you know, in a very clear way on your resume, what you did, I, it's great that you redesigned the budget process, but that doesn't really tell me anything. You know, I, I'm interested in 
how did you engage a part of your community that was not already engaged? That is a very common question that I'm asking and elected officials are asking. We know you're going to be able to engage the people that are always engaged. That's not really that hard. <laughs> they're going to come to your meetings. They're going to send emails. They're going to talk to the elected officials. But how are you measuring how you're engaging people that have not engaged with the local government before? How are you meeting those residents where they are? And businesses too. That is really important. And how do you build that into a more continuous process than just once a year? So you'll see people that um, in local governments that are using some sort of combination of pulse surveys and other surveys, you know, that's obviously the data side, but you, for the elected officials and for the community, it's really helpful to be able to tell that story. You know, how, how are you able um, to meet a need in a community through your budget process that you hadn't heard of before? Back when uh, the American Rescue Plan was first past, I wrote a story about what budget directors, what people were doing around engaging their community. And the one, one of the things that stick, stuck out for me in doing that was uh, when I was speaking with someone from the city of Alexandria, Alexandria, Virginia. And she said that some, one of the feedback they've gotten from, from some of their neighborhood outreach was folks wanted spending on um, dental care for low-income families, something that wasn't even on the radar, um, but they managed to work that in. And, and that's like, that was what I thought when you said that. I mean, that's why you do the outreach, right? Um, so that when you spend money, it goes to something that people actually need. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, so much of um, and all the federal money that's coming out, I mean, there's such an opportunity to um, to make some transfer, transformational change in communities. But there's the risk of just doing what we've always done rather than kind of meeting sort of those very specific needs that are right now or longer term sort of generational transformational needs. So yeah, I think that's a that's a great example. And um, we've helped with some communities that are doing engagement more specifically on that. It's not just those federal dollars that are coming out now, but you know, hopefully maybe some state folks are paying attention and give some flexibility for local governments because what you tend to do is just tailor, okay, let's go for this money and let's go for this money and let's go for this money. When sometimes um, there are things that don't fit neatly in those. I think a robust community engagement can, if you're doing that on a routine basis, then you're really ready for those grants and other opportunities that might be out there from, from the federal government or from your state state government. You know, for, for those of us who came up during uh, a particular era, the advice was always, you know, if you're a city manager, the single best thing you can do with respect to policing is hire a great police chief and just get out of the way and let them do their thing. Mm -hmm. And it was the same on the finance side, right? I mean, for the most part, police budgets, uh, fire budgets were uh, sacrosanct. There wasn't a lot of discussion. There wasn't a lot of scrutiny. Given everything that you just said about the new skills demands, particularly for public safety leaders, does that change at all the way that the city manager or the finance director are interacting with the police chief? And if so, does that mean that you're maybe looking for a slightly different kind of person when you're looking for a city manager or a, or a CFO, given that we're expecting something different now from public safety? I think one of the things that I hear a lot from our clients that are looking for police chiefs, um, not in every case, but in many cases is we want a chief that is a part of the organization. 
Um, we don't want them kind of as a separate unit with separate rules and just sort of not not disengaged with the community, but maybe sometimes disengaged with the rest of the organization. And I think that the best police chiefs are highly engaged with all the other department heads because crime and public safety issues, they don't just fit neatly in a box that we outline that says police does this, you know, they're, they're complex issues. And I think that's actually been one of the stressors on police. They have in many places been asked to, you know, take on many of these quality of life issues, mental health issues that, that they need other resources from other parts of the organization. So I think the, the best chiefs are truly collaborative internally as well as externally with partners in the community. And that's difficult because their line of work is a little different than, than other parts of local government. I mean, there's a reason why they have some different rules sometimes, but I do think that um, the best departments and the best chiefs are really engaged in that. And they have to be able to make the financial case and they have to be able to make HR cases and they have to be able to partner with lots of different departments and, you know, inside and outside of local government for them to really make the changes that they really want to make. Well, thank you so much, uh, Catherine Tuck Parish. Wonderful insights into all sorts of different dimensions of the interesting intersection between uh, leadership and local government, local government finance, creating workplaces where people want to be and the role that that plays in the kind of community transformation that we're seeing a lot of in in a post-COVID world. So thank you so much for taking the time to join the Public Money Pod. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you again to Catherine Tuck Parrish for joining us to talk through all of these very interesting leadership, recruitment, and other HR, human capital kinds of challenges that we are confronting in both the world of public money, but in the world of uh, state and local government more generally. Wonderful to have her insights, and we always appreciate uh, having folks like her come on to, to tell us about their experiences. So now, of course, it's time, as always, for extra credit. This is our segment where we take audience questions and give what I think are great answers. Hopefully, the audience thinks are great answers. Uh, this this uh, week's question has to do with local income taxes. Hi, this is Beth from South Carolina. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. My question for you is, why do some local governments have an income tax, but many do not? Thank you. Well, thanks so much for that question. Uh, you know, a great question, certainly when we talk about general revenues at the state level, we're almost always talking about income tax. There's a handful of states that don't have a state income tax, Texas, Florida, places like that. But as a general rule, when we're talking about general revenues at the state level, we're talking about personal and corporate income tax. And that's not the case at the local level. There's actually very few uh, local governments across the country that have access to a local income tax. It varies quite a bit by state. If you go to states like Pennsylvania, you'll see them. In Ohio, there's a few jurisdictions that have them. Uh, but as a general rule, you don't have a lot of local income taxes. Now, there are definitely some big cities that have some version of a local income tax. They might call it something different. It might be an earnings tax. Uh, might be a commuter tax, might be a head tax. There's different ways that that kind of tax is levied. And the idea there is that when people are commuting into downtown to work, uh, they're using you know, services, city services and other services in that downtown area while they're working. So they're, they should they ought to pay something for the privilege of 
doing business downtown. And so those local income taxes are a reflection of that. But as a general rule, those are the exception um, rather than the norm. Again, in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania and elsewhere where we do have some local income taxes, the concern, of course, always is that uh, if if not everybody has a local income tax, then it creates an incentive for people to leave. If I live in a community and I don't want to pay that local income tax, I can move someplace where where they don't have that local income tax. And there's some evidence that that happens, uh, some evidence that it's not that big uh, a tax liability and therefore it's not a huge change of behavior, but it definitely could be. And that's what the economic theory around in- income taxes tells us. And so they're not all that popular in smaller and mid-sized jurisdictions, but we do see them in large jurisdictions. Now, Liz, you've you've looked at this, and and of course we've been talking a lot about the work from home phenomenon and what that means for income taxes, particularly in big cities. Uh, what's your take on on this question of why don't we see more local income taxes? Yeah, there is going to be, I think, some interesting things happening related to local income taxes uh, and and remote work. One of those is that for a long time, cities that don't have a local income tax have had to bear that tax burden of having a, such a high daytime population. Well, <laughs> in some places that might not be as big of a deal. I, you know, Washington D.C. is one of them, and, and Washington D.C. does have a have an income tax. They have all the taxes because it's a city and a state and a county and and a mm-hmm. uh, a, a territory, as we say <laughs> on another episode. But you know that used to be a really big deal in D.C. Is they they even raised the income tax at, uh, a couple of times when I was a reporter there just to to be able to cover some of those expenses. But now Washington D.C.'s local income tax might not be as big of a as big of a deal as it once was. Right. Pre-pandemic, we did see a little bit of movement in this direction too. I mean, one of the high profile examples was in Seattle, where there was an attempt to, you know, affect it was it was euphemistically called the Amazon tax, but it was essentially a, a way to try to extract more revenue from Amazon given the explosive growth of Amazon in downtown Seattle. There was a sense that they weren't Amazon wasn't contributing enough uh, that the sales tax and, and other taxes that are paid by their employees really did not do enough to to help finance all of the infrastructure and all of the services that that growth was demanding. And so there was a push by uh, community activists to try to put in place a, a it was it was a head tax. it was a, it was a, a set tax per employee who was working downtown. Um, and after some, uh, politically, it, it wasn't maybe as popular as some would have thought. And eventually, they came to kind of a negotiated solution with Amazon on how Amazon could maybe contribute more. And it was an interesting, it was interesting political dynamic, because it really did uh, kind of force the question of when you have an employer like an Amazon, and many would many local governments would love to have an employer like Amazon, what kind of relationship, you know, can you have with them? What is a healthy fiscal and other relationship with those big employers look like. And if not, um, again, one another in answer to the question, why do we often not, why, why do we not see a lot of local income taxes? It's precisely for this sort of reason that, that big employers, you know, look at it as a real burden. Big employers often have options about where they can go and they might choose to go to a community that does not have a local income tax. So uh, yeah, really, really interesting set of questions and really gets at the heart of Many of the dynamics we've talked about here today, if you if you depend on a local income tax, you need people downtown working. If you don't have people downtown working, now what? What's the alternative? And those are exactly the sorts of questions that a lot of big cities, especially, are having to ask themselves right now. 
Great question. As always, love to hear that feedback from the audience. If you have a question, please be sure to send it to us and we will get to it. Thanks a lot. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.